From NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. Aisha Roscoe, good morning. Former President Donald Trump has been indicted four times. This week we may find out when one of those cases will go to trial. And climate change is causing more severe natural disasters. What does that mean for FEMA? Plus, the Library of Congress has a new research guide for black banjo music. We talked to one of the featured musicians. I hope that in 100 years from now, there will be a lot more widespread knowledge about African-American banjo players and incorporation of this music into other contemporary Black music genres. It's Sunday, August 27th. News is next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Luis Schiavone. Officials in Russia say they now have forensics proof that Wagner mercenary group leader Yevgeny Prigozhin was on board a plane that fell out of the sky last Wednesday between Moscow and St. Petersburg. Russia's investigation committee today announced that through genetics testing, it's identified the remains of all 10 people killed and Prigozhin was among them. With mercenaries from the Wagner Group fighting in Ukraine two months ago, Prigozhin had led a rebellion against Russia's military leaders over the conduct of the war in Ukraine. Officials in Jacksonville, Florida, say the young white gunman in a mass shooting left behind manifestos detailing an ideology of racially motivated hate. Sheriff T.K. Waters described the scene where four people died, including the gunman who killed himself. An individual we have not yet officially identified entered a Dollar Tree in the Newtown area of Jacksonville, outfitted with a tactical vest, armed with an AR-style rifle, and a handgun. Then the shooter killed three people before turning the gun on himself, taking his own life. The sheriff says it's believed the gunman, who's not been identified publicly, acted alone. Three U.S. Marines have died after their aircraft crashed during a military exercise in Australia. Several others were injured, with some flown to a hospital. The BBC's Ellen Duncan reports. Police say the crash took place at 9 a.m. Uh, around Melville Island. Now, that's an island off the north coast of Northern Territory in Australia, around 60 kilometres north of Darwin. Uh, it was uh, taking part in a, an exercise called Exercise Predators Run 2023. Now, that's the largest Australian army-led exercise that's being held in the Northern Territory this year. We know that uh, a total of this exercise is around 2,500 uh, military members taking part. These are from countries that include, of course, the US, Australia, but also Philippines, East Timor and Indonesia. The BBC's Ellen Duncan. Seven people are recovering after being shot and two have been arrested in Boston after gunfire broke out near a neighborhood celebration in the city this weekend. John Bender from member station WBUR has details. Authorities say the shooting began shortly before 8 a.m. near the city's annual Caribbean Festival. Boston police say the gunshots were completely unrelated to the celebration, which continued on into the afternoon. Boston Police Commissioner Michael Cox says it's still very early in the investigation. But it seems to potentially be maybe uh, two groups uh, having some type of altercation around that. And so, unfortunately, as a result of it being a large crime scene, we did stop the parade at the, on Talbot Avenue. Police say the investigation is ongoing. For NPR News, I'm John Bender in Boston. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. 
This week, Boston Mayor Michelle Wu is expected to file a proposal with the city council for a new ordinance to deal with issues at the area known as Mass and Cass. The proposed ordinance would give broader powers to remove tent encampments from the area. It's part of the mayor's latest effort to deal with substance abuse and violence in the area. The strategy also includes creating new temporary shelter spaces for individuals experiencing homelessness. The city of Springfield is countersuing a former police officer, saying he's costing the city money and credibility. Greg Bigda is suing the city for defamation. Bigda claims city officials attempted to force his resignation after a jury cleared him of brutality charges. The city denies the allegations. An attorney for Bigda tells Mass Live that they'll ask the court to dismiss the city's countersuit. This week, college students across Boston are set to begin moving in. Boston University students start their move-in days tomorrow, and BU officials say, be prepared, there will be heavy traffic and limited parking in the area. And this is peak season for starrowing. That refers to people driving moving trucks where they don't belong and getting stuck under low bridges on Starrow Drive. The state is installing new traffic signs in the area around Starrow Drive in an effort to prevent the problem. A Boston business is raising funds to support recovery efforts in Hawaii following the wildfires. Mamie Dumplings will donate proceeds from the sales of a new dessert to the Maui Strong Fund. Operations manager Laura Dybel has family on the island and came up with the idea and says she hopes other local businesses will follow suit. We'd like to invite other businesses to run similar promotions and support Maui. So it it would be good to know that our customers are behind us in this effort. Search and rescue efforts continue on the island where hundreds of people remain missing. It is 68 degrees in Boston, a slight chance of showers and thunderstorms today, and highs in the low 70s. Tomorrow should be mostly sunny with temperatures in the mid-70s. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people, and Jarl and Pamela Mohn, thanking the people who make public radio great every day and also those who listen. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Good morning. Tomorrow here in Washington, we may find out exactly when one of the cases involving former President Donald Trump will go to trial. We're talking about the January 6th criminal case brought by special counsel Jack Smith. And we're going to talk with NPR White House correspondent Tamara Keefe about that and more right now. Good morning, Tam. Good morning, Aisha. So Smith had asked the court to start the trial this coming January. Trump asked for April 2026, right? So a bit of a difference there. Oh, a big difference. Smith has argued that the public deserves a speedy trial and resolution. Trump's team says there are so many documents and so much testimony they need to go through that they need more time, like until a year and a half after the election more time. Um, But let's also be very clear about what's going on here. Former President Trump is running to retake the Oval Office while simultaneously being prosecuted at both the federal and state level for his extraordinary efforts to cling to power. Um, And then there are the other cases involving classified documents and hush money payments to an, an adult film actress. There are 91 counts in all. 
And Trump is facing a traffic jam of court dates, bumping up against primaries and caucuses and debates and rallies. Um, this past week, there was the GOP debate uh, and the former president going in for a mugshot with helicopters following him mm. the whole way. It was completely bonkers. Get used to it. Um, mm. There's going to be a lot of that sort of thing uh, in the 2024 election cycle. Um, and it's also worth pointing out that Trump remains the prohibitive front runner in the GOP primary, despite losing in 2020 and despite the four indictments. Um, and part of that is that he has just conditioned Republican primary voters not to trust the justice system, the press, any number of other institutions in the United States. Um, and uh, as much as uh, this uh, legal filing and court dates and all of these things are big news on CNN and MSNBC, on Fox News and Newsmax. Um, it is not as big a story. Uh, the, these these stories are hitting very differently in the bubbles in which we all reside. Mm. Uh, Trump is featured in a new campaign ad from President Biden, but not for his legal troubles. Let's take a listen. Reproductive health care decisions are among the most personal a woman will ever make. They are choices that should be made by you and your doctor. And the last people who should be involved are these guys. First of all, I'm the one that got rid of Roe v. Wade. Florida Governor DeSantis. These guys. Uh, this ad is being targeted online to women voters in swing states, and it is part of a $25 million ad spending commitment from the Biden campaign over the next four months. Um, if you look at the ads that they've put out so far, it gives you a great preview of what they think will be the Biden re-election campaign themes, highlighting the improved economy and arguing President Biden's policies will keep helping middle-class Americans, and then saying Republicans are extreme and out of line with the American mainstream. Um, so uh, you can bet this will not be the last time that Biden and Democrats will draw attention to abortion access. It's an issue that they expect will continue to be quite salient for voters. And they point to the recent Ohio special election and the Wisconsin state Supreme Court race earlier this year. On the Republican side, this debate this past week made it clear that the party hasn't really settled on a post-row position. Some of the candidates were arguing that it should be a state issue um, and that states should be free to have restrictive bans or not. Um, and others argued in favor of a national abortion ban, but they didn't agree on when it should be. Some talked about six weeks, others talked about 15 weeks. Um, and that is something that certainly is not going to be resolved until the party settles on a nominee and likely not even then. And even though there's not a, a presidential nominee yet, the GOP is in full campaign mode. Here's a bit of an ad from the Republican National Committee. When Republicans vote early, we win. You could bank your vote by casting your ballot before Election Day. Either early, in person, or by mail. Go to bankyourvote.com to sign up and commit to voting early. That's how we're going to be. Now, this is happening at the same time while Republican-led legislatures, like in North Carolina, are moving to restrict voting in, in the few seconds we have left. Yeah, and it's notable President Trump was in that ad, too. This is all about uh, trying to get out the vote and, and not leaving votes on the table as they did in 2020 uh, by turning their voters off of this really useful tool, voting early. That's NPR White House correspondent and NPR Politics podcast host, Tamara Keith. Tam, thanks so much. You're welcome, Aisha.
Americans across the country have been hit with one natural disaster after another this year. And as the climate crisis worsens, the work of the Federal Emergency Management Agency, FEMA, which is tasked with responding to these events, will grow. To understand the scope of the challenge FEMA is facing, we called Craig Fugate. He served as FEMA Administrator under President Obama, and he joins me now. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. The Biden administration recently asked Congress for an additional $12 billion for FEMA's disaster relief fund. In your experience, how unusual is a request like this? Not unusual at all. The disaster relief fund is the tool that FEMA uses to fund all of these disasters. And while Congress provides annual appropriations, when you've had a lot of disasters that exceed that, it's not uncommon for an administration to go back and ask for more money. This happened in the Trump administration, the Obama administration, the Bush administration, the Clinton administration. So this isn't anything that's new. Tell me about what FEMA's role is. It's, it's quite expansive, right? It's quite expansive, but let's focus on what we call the disaster relief fund. This is the funding that Congress provides that when the president declares a disaster, um, those are the tax dollars that FEMA then uses to help support the response and recovery of that event. This is, I think, one of the big misunderstandings that FEMA pays for everything, and the answer is no. It's primarily for uninsured losses. So things like your response costs, calling out the National Guard, opening shelters, picking up debris, the supplies FEMA sends, the generators, all those costs, those are kind of the response costs. And then you get into the second part of that, which is the rebuilding cost. An example, if your community had a fire station and got destroyed in a tornado, you didn't have insurance on that fire station and the president had declared your area part of a disaster declaration, then FEMA would reimburse through the state, local government, 75% of the cost to replace that fire station. For individuals and families, that program is also based upon uninsured losses. That's why, you know, a lot of times in wildfires and tornadoes where there tends to be more insurance, you may not see as much payouts to families, even though there was tremendous damage. But in a flood, we tend to see more paid out because fewer people have flood insurance, and that tends to be a greater uninsured loss. Well, I got, I got a question about that because we are seeing uh, more news of insurance companies pulling out of major states. So what type of impact does that put on FEMA when you have insurance companies now balking at uh, insuring some of these places that continue to be hit by natural disasters? As taxpayers, we're going to be paying more in disasters. And this is one of the things, the legislation that designed all of this is called the Stafford Act. And part of the Stafford Act was based upon uh, the idea that insurance would be the primary way of managing risk and that the federal government would step in when there wasn't insurance, it wasn't available, or it wasn't affordable. And as we continue to see more and more people either being underinsured or not insured, it means that the cost to the taxpayers will be going up. But the other thing is that for a lot of people, their ability to recover is going to be significantly reduced because FEMA does not make somebody whole. Where if I have replacement costs in my home, my home gets destroyed, my insurance company is supposed to pay to replace my home. If I don't have that insurance and I'm turning to FEMA, 
Uh, it's very unlikely that what FEMA can provide would even do basic repairs, much less return my home back to something that was livable. And that I think for a lot of reasons now starts becoming very scary when you start talking about available, affordable workforce housing. Because when these housing units don't get repaired and rebuilt, people are often forced out of their communities because when you start rebuilding brand new property, they can't afford to new property, they can't afford to repair their old homes and they get displaced. And this is exactly what you're hearing people in Maui extremely concerned about. Ultimately, do you think that FEMA will need to change or need to make any adaptations because of the challenges posed by climate change? The challenge is not, I think, FEMA. I think the challenge is Congress having to rethink our disaster programs that were literally built for the past and go, what are we going to do differently as a nation if we're moving away from an insurance model of managing risks to increasing the role of the federal government and the taxpayer and not having a good program for housing that addresses these needs where you're seeing that the public servants in the communities can no longer afford to live there. The police officers, the firefighters, the doctors, the nurses, I mean, they're getting priced out of communities and they're having to move away from where they work. And this isn't just once or twice. We see this repeatedly, especially in coastal areas or in areas that are very desirable that people will spend a lot of money. In many cases are building second and third order homes at the expense of the primary homeowners and residents. That's Craig Fugate. He served as FEMA administrator under President Obama. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. You're listening to NPR News. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 818 and coming up in about five minutes here on 90.9 WBUR, You'll hear about updated recommendations for prescribing and insuring drugs that prevent HIV. That and much more ahead on Weekend Edition Sunday. Join us at City Space next month when three-time U.S. Poet Laureate Robert Penske takes the stage for a special evening of poetry featuring jazz performances. That's Saturday, September 9th. For tickets, go to wbur.org events. It's 68 degrees in Boston, a slight chance of some showers and thunderstorms today with highs in the low 70s. Tomorrow should be mostly sunny with temperatures in the mid-70s. This is WBUR. Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org cars. I'm Luis Schiavone with these headlines. Officials in Russia say they now have forensic proof that Wagner mercenary group leader Yevgeny Prigozhin was on board a plane that fell out of the sky last Wednesday between Moscow and St. Petersburg. Four astronauts are preparing to dock this morning with the International Space Station lifting off yesterday from Cape Canaveral in a SpaceX Dragon. The team will replace four astronauts who have been living on the space station since March. The campaign of former President Donald Trump says it's raised $7 million with campaign merch featuring Trump's Fulton County mugshot. I'm Luis Schiavone, NPR News, Washington.
Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed, a hiring platform designed to streamline the hiring process. Indeed works to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates in one place. More at indeed.com NPR. From the Rockefeller Foundation, making opportunity universal and sustainable for over 100 years. And from the William T. Grant Foundation, supporting research to improve the lives of young people at wtgrantfdn.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. In Jacksonville, Florida, a gunman shot and killed three people and then took his own life. Authorities said the shooting was motivated by his hatred of black people. It took place at a Dollar General store near Edward Waters University, a small historically black university. Joining us for more is reporter Dan Scanlon with member station WJCT. Good morning. Good morning. Dan, you were at the scene. What more do we know about the shooting? Well, the gunman, again, is a white male in his 20s. That's all the police would say. He was wearing a tactical-style uh, vest and some kind of mask. He had an assault-style rifle and a handgun. And apparently, as the sheriff said, he just decided to target black people going to this store in a predominantly black neighborhood just blocks down the street from Edward Waters. And all the victims were black. It was two men and a woman that he shot. The police said the suspect wrote several racist statements prior to the shooting. Like, do we know any more about those and, and, and his motivations for this? Not much was released about these writings other than the man told his father to look for them and then the sheriff's office and investigators found out more about them. Unfortunately, about the same time that the shooting occurred, but Sheriff T.K. Waters said the gunman had alerted his family about that and these paperworks uh, detailed his racist motivation for the killings uh, that happened. One to his parents, one to the media, and one to federal agents. Portions of these manifestos detailed the shooter's disgusting ideology of hate. Plainly put, this shooting was racially motivated and he hated black people. The sheriff himself is a black man, and he said he was sickened by what he saw uh, as a coward's ideology of hate. Do authorities think that the gunman was linked to any organized hate groups? No, the the sheriff indicated that this man uh, had no connection with any group, that he was alone in this. The FBI uh, is on scene along with ATF, and they have actually opened up uh, a federal hate investigation into this situation. The only background we have on the man is that in 2016 there was a domestic call uh, that he was involved with but not arrested, and he was what is called Baker Acted in 2017. That's involuntary uh, examination, psychological examination. So how is the community reacting? I mean, you know, just going to the Dollar General store, which um, people do every day, and to be targeted in such a, a horrific way. This is a very vibrant community. Uh, it is an historically black community. Historically also has had many, many uh, issues with gunplay. The campus even uh, has uh, shot spotters so they can hear shots that are going on. Uh, there were prayer vigils last night. There were some very angry people. Uh, lawmakers were holding the vigil in the street. And then this morning, uh, we are told there's another prayer vigil. NAACP has reacted to this. So has Gabby Gifford sending out a statement yesterday about the horrific situation that happened in Jacksonville. That's reporter Dan Scanlon with member station WJCT in Jacksonville. Thank you so much. Thank you.
A new recommendation from the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force will make it easier for insured patients to access medication that prevents HIV. But what about those without insurance? To learn more about the new recommendation and what it means for people with HIV, we're joined by Dr. Carlos Del Rio. He's a professor of infectious diseases at Emory University and the president of the Infectious Diseases Society of America. Dr. Del Rio, welcome back to the show. Happy to be with you. So what exactly is the task force recommending and how is it different from their original recommendation in 2019? Well, Aisha, in 2019, the United States Preventive Services Task Force released a recommendation saying that the administration of a pill, which is a combination of two antiretrovirals, tenofovir and emtricitabine, was approved for the prevention of HIV infection and gave it a grade A recommendation. And what a grade A recommendation means is that insurance companies and Medicaid under the Affordable Care Act is going to pay for this. And so this is going to be provided uh, free of charge to the beneficiary. What happened this time around is since 2019, a lot of science has occurred. A lot of new drugs have developed. And there's a drug which is a derivative of the initial drug. And this is a different formulation of tenofovir that has been shown to be effective for the prevention of HIV. But also an injectable drug, which is long-acting cabotegavir, is effective in the prevention of HIV infection. Uh, both in, in men who have sex with men and in women. And this is really a game-changing medication because instead of having to take a pill every day, you can now have an injection uh, given to you every two months. And if you, with that injection, essentially you're able to prevent the acquisition of HIV infection. And what the Prevent Services has done is said those two additional drugs also deserve a grade A recommendation. Before this new recommendation came out, the original recommendation was facing legal challenges over the requirement that insurers cover these drugs. Is there a concern that these challenges could halt this coverage? Uh, absolutely. There is a significant concern. Last year, there was a, a judge in Texas that essentially agreed that it was unconstitutional for the Department of Health and Human Services to mandate coverages for preventative services. And if this were to continue and, and be affirmed by the Supreme Court, would really append not only uh, PrEP, a pre-exposure prophylaxis, a highly effective intervention to prevent HIV infection, but think about all the other things recommended by the U.S. Preventive Service Task Force, screen mammographies and screen colonoscopies. All those are level A recommendations that currently Medicaid is covering or the uninsured have access to. So HIV is known to disproportionately affect Black and Latino communities as well as low-income communities. Um, and, and, and these, uh, you know, same groups uh, tend to have disproportionately larger numbers of uninsured people. Is there a way to close this accessibility gap, especially for such an important medication? You know, are, are there charities? Are there nonprofits that are helping with this? There are. And, you know, there's patient assistance and the other programs. But the reality is that at the end of the day, is not enough. There's a group of academic researchers, of lawyers, of community advocates that have proposed a national PrEP program, really optimize PrEP access equitably. Because if we were to use PrEP appropriately, uh, we would be able to really prevent uh, many new HIV infections. So then does that end up meaning that you really have to have the federal government involved here? 
Well, you know, I think so. I think we need a combination of the federal government. I think we need also industry to come to the table, right? Why are we paying such high prices for these medications? Now, I would tell you that from a cost-benefit perspective, this is very cost-effective. You know, this is, this is investment that makes sense. That's Dr. Carlos Del Rio. He's a professor of infectious diseases at Emory University and president of the Infectious Diseases Society of America. Dr. Del Rio, thank you so much. Aisha, delighted to be with you. On Friday, officials in Maui said they had combed through 99% of the wreckage that remains in Lahaina. Meanwhile, the number of people confirmed dead remained the same, with many families waiting to find out if their loved ones are among those who've been identified. For one mother who raced through the fire to find her son, the pain has moved from not knowing to grieving. NPR's Vanessa Romo has the story, and please be mindful of more sensitive ears that may also be listening this morning. Earlier this month, Luz Vargas had been making party plans for her adopted son, Guerrero Fuentes. He was about to turn 15. But on his birthday last weekend, she found herself putting together a memorial service for him instead. On the day of the fires, Gallero was home alone, says Vargas, who only speaks Spanish. Both she and Gallero are from Mexico. She says since classes for juniors hadn't started yet, he'd slept in. The rest of the family, including Vargas, her husband Andres, and their middle son Josue, were all working nearby. They run a cleaning service for hotels and apartments. When the blaze engulfed Lahaina, they jumped in their car, bolting toward their burning neighborhood. But with the traffic jam and the fire moving so rapidly, they soon had to abandon it. Vargas says everyone was running away from the flames, but they ran toward them. They split up so that at least one of them might be able to reach Gallero, who they thought might be sleeping. On the way to the house, a woman grabbed hold of Vargas and pleaded with her to stop. Don't go. The fires consumed everything, Vargas remembers her saying. But she kept going. She told the woman, I want to save my son. She sprinted up a series of winding streets. The soles of her flip-flops started to melt. She chucked them off. A man on a motorbike offered to drive her to the edge of the fire. She says she hopped on behind him, reciting prayer after prayer. Around them, she says, the fire was devouring houses and cars. Birds were falling from the sky. The man took her up to where firefighters were battling the flames. She says that police barricading the area wouldn't let her through. Have faith that your son got out, they told her. In response to a request for comment on what happened that day, the Maui Police Department told NPR they'll provide an after-action report at a later time. For the next two days, Vargas and her husband say they searched for Cayero at local shelters, hitching rides from friends after their car burned. But mostly, they waited for the boy to turn up at a local park that's been a hub for survivors. Then on August 10th, Vargas says two friends told her they'd snuck into her house and that they'd found Gallero. He was dead. She wanted to see him for herself. She and her husband went to the house. They found Gallero's charred body on a pile of debris in what had been his bedroom. 
Vargas closed her eyes to describe what she'd seen. She says the boy was face down on the ground. The family dog was lying just inches away. She let out a howl and a supplication. She asked God to embrace him. Andres Garcia, Vargas's husband, says he then wrapped their son's body in a tarp that he found amid the debris. Garcia says he took Queiro to police and that they told him they'd remove the boy from the unaccounted for list. They also said they'd be in touch once the boy's remains could be released to a funeral home. But for two weeks, the family says they heard nothing. Queiro's name still has not appeared on the official list of victims. NPR emailed and called the Maui Police Department several times last week, asking them to confirm that they had received Queiro's body from his family. They initially did not respond. Then, during a press conference on Tuesday, one of NPR's producers asked Maui Police Chief John Pelletier why the names of victims who had been recovered by family members were not being added to the list of confirmed dead. By that time, NPR had reported Queiro's story. Here's what the police chief said. So I heard a story today for the first time. Uh, I have no basis in fact on this. That somebody said that they recovered a family member and took them to a police station. We, we don't know anybody that that happened to. I can't find that. But the next day, the department issued a press release saying they could confirm that a Lahaina family had recovered their son's body and delivered it to police. They did not name Cayeto and wouldn't when NPR followed up by email. But they did say that they'd obtained a DNA sample from, quote, the individual's biological relative in Mexico, which they'd need to make a positive identification. In the meantime, Vargas kept her promise to Cayeto. She held a 15th birthday celebration for her son at the park where he took his first steps. About 60 people turned up. There was chocolate cake and pozole. Vargas says she can feel Queiro's spirit all around her. His baby face appears to her in dreams to tell her that he's okay. She tells him he'll never suffer again. Vargas tells him to wait. One day, she'll leave this earth too, and they'll be together again. Vanessa Romo, NPR News. edition from NPR News. Been a few minutes in a summer place, Tel Aviv, at the beach on a late Saturday afternoon. Saturday is the Sabbath, Shabbat, the day of rest. Trains don't run, most shops are closed, and the beach is packed with an unlikely mix of Israelis, Palestinians, and others escaping the summer heat and the stresses of Middle Eastern life. Here's NPR's Daniel Estrin. Saturday at the beach in Tel Aviv, Shabbat. You're here with your guitar. What's on your mind? Nothing. That's the fun of it. I live in the poor part of Tel Aviv and there's like lots of stress and junkies and stuff, you know. So it's not really calming being around there. You know, and you hear people hitting each other. 
so it's not really coming. I'm just playing, enjoying the beach, the view, you know. Nothing. <laughs> Nothing else like, is on my mind. It's like suddenly you're not all stressed out. Daniel Tillman on the guitar. Where the sea meets the sand, couples play the paddle ball game known in the U.S. as Kadima and here as Matkot. And on the boardwalk, a hundred men and women dance in a circle, Israeli folk dancing. My name is Kami, Kami Dahan, and I uh, love folk dance. This is my life. Every Saturday is here, but... What do you love about it? Hang out, to go and hang out with no alcohol, sports, music, four hours of fun, and all free. It's not just Israelis at the beach. Where are you guys from? We're from Eritrea. Eritrea, nice. Mose Hilo came to Tel Aviv in 2018. He escaped the dictatorship in Eritrea. Like you see, I came to the beach. We got some beer and we discuss. They're talking about their future. They don't know how long they'll be able to stay here. We don't have future no here, not in Eritrea, but we have a small freedom here, more than Eritrea. A few steps away in the water is Zahra Ahmad. She's a Palestinian from Kalkilia in the occupied West Bank. It's the first time she's managed to get an Israeli military permit to come to the sea in about 12 years. Her sister-in-law was supposed to be here with her, but she didn't have the right permit and was turned away at the Israeli checkpoint. A scooter ride along the boardwalk brings you past the gay beach. Rainbow-colored awnings give shade. Right next door is the Orthodox Jewish beach. It's walled off and gender segregated. So there's a, a Sunday, Tuesday, and Thursday, it's for a woman, and the other days, it's for men, and Saturdays, it's for all. And Saturdays is when Elat Arnon, who lives across the street, visits this beach when it's open to all, even though she's not Orthodox. She thinks the segregated part of the beach is another way of making the beach inclusive for all. It's beautiful. Everyone can enjoy the beach. And everyone does, until the sun sets and the day of rest is over. Daniel Estrin, NPR News, Tel Aviv. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Boston police have made two more arrests related to the gunfire that injured eight people yesterday. Four people now have been arrested on firearms charges and are scheduled to be arraigned tomorrow in Dorchester. Police say the shooting was not related to the nearby Caribbean festival. This week, Boston Mayor Michelle Wu is expected to file a proposal with the city council for a new ordinance to deal with issues including substance abuse and violence in the area known as Mass and Cass. The ordinance would give police broader powers to remove tent encampments.
Elected leaders in Somerville are urging the city's mayor to declare a state of emergency because of the number of people living without shelter. City councilors say the problem has increased sharply in recent months. Somerville leaders tell the Boston Herald they want the city to build up infrastructure to provide more services to people without housing. At Fenway Park this afternoon, the Red Sox play the Dodgers. Tanner Houck gets the start for Boston. It's 68 degrees in Boston and a slight chance of some showers and thunderstorms and highs today in the low 70s. Tomorrow should be mostly sunny with temperatures in the mid-70s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the half-god of rainfall at ART, a fusion of Greek mythology and Yoruba spirituality from playwright Inua Elams. Start September 8th amrep.org. On Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, we ask the tough questions, whether we're talking about politics or scientists saying you only need to exercise for three seconds a day. Was this study funded by, like, the laziest man in the world? It was. I'm Nagin Farsad, in for Peter Sagal. Join us as we grill our panel and superstar music producer Mark Ronson on this week's News Quiz. Saturday and now Sunday at 10 on 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Kauffman Foundation, providing access to opportunities that help people achieve financial stability, upward mobility, and economic prosperity, regardless of race, gender, or geography. Kauffman.org. From Melville Charitable Trust, committed to ensuring all people have a safe, stable, and affordable home that allows them to thrive. Information about ways to prevent and solve homelessness is at melvilletrust.org. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe, and it's time to play the puzzle. Joining us, as always, is Will Shorts. He's puzzle editor of the New York Times and puzzle master of Weekend Edition. And this weekend, he's also the birthday boy. Happy birthday, Will. Why, thank you, Aisha. (laughs) Well, Will, um, can you remind us of last week's challenge? Yes, it came from listener Paula Egan Wright of Cheyenne, Wyoming. I said, name part of the human body above the neck in nine letters. Rearrange them to name another part of the human body found below the neck. And I said only some people have the first body part. Everyone has the second one. What parts of the human body are these? And the intended answer was buck teeth and butt cheek. (laughs) And uh, that's the first time that probably that phrase has ever been used on NPR. Interestingly, there was an alternative answer. Mustache spelled the M-O-U way. That's an anagram of the mucosa which is defined as soft tissue that lines the body's canals and organs. So there you go, the uh, vocabulary builder for the day. Okay, well, look, so, I mean, it seems like this was a tough one. We got 136 correct submissions to be exact, and Kevin Hicks of Stockton, California, is our winner. Congratulations, Kevin, and welcome to the show. Oh, thank you. So what do you like to do when you're not playing the puzzle? Well, I, uh, I write for over 10 years. I've been writing a poem every day. Oh, wow. That, that is very dedicated. And see, you. so you're very good with words. We know you're very good with words because you're doing poems every single day, which is a lot of work. So I know you're ready to play the puzzle. 
Yep. All right. Take it away, Will. All right, Kevin and Aisha. Every answer today is the name of a U.S. city, which consists of one word inside another. For example, if I said, was in first place, inside a word meaning also, to make a city in Ohio, you would say Toledo, because that has the word lead, L-E-D, inside two, T-O-O, and Toledo is in Ohio. <laughs> okay. Here we go. Number one is the back of the foot, and that's inside part of a bird to make a city in West Virginia. The heel. Yes. And what's part of a bird? Wing. Yeah, put heel inside wing. What do you get? We're wheeling. Wheeling. Wheeling, West Virginia. You got it. You're off and running. Here's number two, where to save money, and that's inside expositions to get a city in Alaska. Fairbanks. Fairbanks. You got it. A word meaning earth, inside Spanish for gold, and it's a city in Florida. Orlando. Orlando, land inside Oro is right. A Cuban revolutionary, inside a list of players, and you get a city in either New York or Minnesota. Rochester. Rochester, yeah, New York or Minnesota, either way. All right, here's your last one. A small songbird inside a frilly fabric, and you get a city in Massachusetts and Kansas. Uh, you know I don't like birds. Um, you know, <laughs> not, uh, think of a, a four-letter one starting W. Wren. Wren, okay, put wren inside a frilly fabric. Mm. Lawrence? Is it Lawrence? Lawrence, yeah. Lawrence. Kansas Lawrence. and Massachusetts. Good job. Okay, Kevin, that was extremely tough. I, I was still trying to figure it out as we was going along. <laughs> so you did a fantastic job. How do you feel? Okay. <laughs> well, for playing our puzzle today, you'll get a weekend additional lapel pin as well as puzzle books and games. You can read all about it at npr.org slash puzzle. And Kevin, what member station do you listen to? Radio in That's Kevin Hicks of Stockton, California. Thank you so much for playing the puzzle. Thank you. Okay, Will, what, what is next week's challenge? Yes, it comes from listener Mary Springhorn of Bellingham, Washington. Think of a noun in six letters. It sounds like a two-word phrase, two letters in the first word, six letters in the last. And the thing named by the noun can have a seriously bad effect on what's named by the phrase. What is it? So again, a six-letter noun sounds like a two-word phrase, two-six, and the thing named by the noun can have a seriously bad effect on what's named by the phrase. When you have the answer, go to our website, npr.org puzzle, and click on the Submit Your Answer link. Remember, just one entry, please. Our deadline for entries this week is Thursday, August 31st at 3 p.m. Eastern. Don't forget to include a phone number where we can reach you. If you're the winner, we'll give you a call. And if you pick up the phone, you'll get to play on the air with the puzzle editor of the New York Times and puzzle master of Weekend Edition, Will Shorts. Thank you, Will. Thank you, Aisha. A new generation of artists have brought African Americans back to the forefront of the banjo scene. Take, for example, Rhiannon Giddens, whom you can hear behind me. 
Black musicians have been a part of the instrument's history from the beginning, but their contributions have often been overlooked or ignored. Now the Library of Congress has published a comprehensive catalog of its resources on black banjo music, recordings, pictures, writings, and more. Joe Johnson, a PhD student in ethnomusicology at Indiana University Bloomington, put the online guide together. It's important to demonstrate a black perspective on the material that we have in the archives. Previous works we've looked at African-American banjo players have used sort of a colonialist, Europeanized lens that does not do proper credence to Black culture. I recently spoke to him and Jake Blunt, who is also an incoming PhD student in ethnomusicology, though he's best known as an award-winning banjo player. I asked Jake Blunt to explain what first drew him to the banjo. I got really interested in it because I was interested in my own family's history and in what types of music my ancestors would have been playing. I've been playing various types of music since I was about 12 years old. And I found out that one of the, the earliest sites of growth for the banjo tradition here in the United States was in the Chesapeake Bay region, which is where my ancestors were enslaved. So I felt like it was a real solid connection to my own family history and lineage. And Joe, you're not only a researcher, but you're a musician yourself and you play the banjo and you took some lessons from Jake. So Jake, I wanna ask you now, what type of student was Joe? I mean, well, this is this is the awkward thing about <laughs> about teaching people a folk instrument, which is that frequently you wind up teaching people who know more about the thing than you do. <laughs> so our our lessons are very fun. We're we're part of this wonderful program called the Black Banjo Fiddle Fellowship that's run by the Oakland Public Conservatory out in Oakland, California. And it's a really wonderful exchange. Joe has so much scholarly acumen, so much deep knowledge. Uh, I have more practical performance experience with this particular instrument. And it's it's really fun to be able to to bring our different expertises together. And Joe, how, how does it feel to move from scholarship to playing the banjo itself? Or or I guess I should ask first, what came first? Was it the, the studying and the learning about the banjo or was it you actually picking up the instrument? Yeah, for me, it's been, I guess it's been a sort of a chicken or egg situation uh, because I first got started playing banjo when I was in college. I was studying classical music and I heard Rhiannon Giddens perform and I heard, I learned about the um, African-American origins of the instrument um, and the relationship to like specifically Appalachia and North Carolina, which is where my family comes from. And as part of my education and musical practice, I started to learn the instrument and then I started learning more about history and they all sort of started building on one another until I decided to go and pursue a PhD researching it and performing it. Working with Jake has been quite wonderful because we've known each other for um, a number of years but particularly with the Oakland Public Conservatory's uh, Black Banjo Fiddle Fellowship it's been really nice to have a space that is a Black space where we can talk about these Black issues and have a Black perspective on African-American banjo player that, players that we don't typically get in other spaces. Mm. And, and Jake, you're, you're no stranger to NPR. You've done a tiny desk, you've gone on tours, and you're really known for your banjo prowess. What caught your eye about the guy that uh, Joe has put together? 
Well, a number of things. Um, firstly, that, you know, I've made a number of trips to the Library of Congress myself. I grew up in D.C., uh, so it was right down the street. And once I started getting into this music, I did make a few trips and listen to some of the recordings that Joe included in the guide. And there's wonderful stuff. And it's also cool that I'm on it. <laughs> and, you know, you try not to let that go to your head in any real way. But I think for those of us who are performing this traditional music, there's something really significant about seeing yourself become part of the archive that you learned to play from. Uh, mm. For those of us who are learning, especially Black string band traditions, very, very few of those folks in the uh, 20th century survived to pass on their music directly to the next generation of people. We all have to do a lot of reconstruction. And I think it's really powerful to me as someone who learns the music in that way, who performs this music and who has such a deep relationship with the archives as a performer to know that, you know, 100 years from now, 200 years from now, when some other black kid goes, oh, I heard we used to play the banjo and goes and looks it up, they might find me on the guide. And and Jake, you have your banjo with you. Was there a particular entry that attracted your attention and could you play it for us if you will i can do that um was it about this piece of music that was special to you? So that tune is called Leather Britches. Uh, there are a lot of different versions of it. That particular one comes from a banjo player named Nathan Frazier. And I felt really drawn to Nathan Frazier's playing from the time that I first heard it because I learned to play from a bunch of hippies up in a town called Ithaca, New York. Um, and they kind of have their own unique regional style and way that they play the music. And I love it very much. And there's a lot of banjo stuff that tends to get credited to that scene uh, or to the people who helped build the scene were there maybe before it started. Um, and listening to Nathan Frazier, I find him using a lot of similar techniques to those people who allegedly invented those sounds about three, four decades down the line. And Joe, what did you think of, of that piece of music? I thought that it was an excellent um, way to interpret and reinterpret uh, what was coming out of the archive, because that particular tune was recorded uh, by John Wesley Work in Middle Tennessee, which is actually a region of the United States and like the Upland South that's not typically thought of as being a place where Black banjo players are, when in fact it helps demonstrate that there are Black banjo players all throughout Appalachia and in the South, and there's even more recordings that can come from folks further west. And, and, and uh, you both know a lot about banjo history, but Joe, I'm wondering, did you learn something new or was there something that really stood out to you from the making of this guy that you didn't know before? Yeah, so something that was new for me was seeing um, 
particularly the Elizabeth Cotton banjo recordings, because we typically hear about Elizabeth Cotton being a, a blues guitarist, um, but hearing her banjo repertoire and listening, it made it clear to me how she combined her banjo technique with her guitar technique to create her really unique cotton picking style. And, and Joe, I mean, Jake kind of talked very beautifully about, you know, him being in the guide and that maybe someone, you know, a uh, hundred years from now, a young Black child might read the guide, look at the guide and and um, see Jake in it. I guess I, I have to ask, what now that you have compiled this guide, would you want for people to think about a hundred years from now? I would want someone a hundred years from now to recognize that the banjo, I mean, fundamentally is not a white instrument the way that it's been branded. I want people to understand that even though there was a century of scholarship that was focused on a very European um, tokenizing lens of African-American banjo players, but also folk musicians, roots musicians in general, um, there are people in the early 21st century who are starting to rewrite those wrongs and trying to provide a Black perspective to this, our, our musical culture. And I hope that in a hundred years from now, there will, there will be a lot more um, widespread knowledge, general knowledge about African-American banjo players and incorporation of this music into other contemporary Black music genres like rap, hip hop, um, R&B, house, disco, things like that. That's researcher Joe Johnson and banjo musician Jake Blunt. Thank you both so much. Thank you for having us. Thank you for having us. And before we let you go, though, Jake, could you play us out with one of your favorite tunes? Absolutely. In addition, from NPR News, I'm Aisha Roscoe. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Hint, maker of fruit-infused water with no sugar or diet sweeteners. Hint's 25 flavors include blackberry, coconut, and blueberry lemon. In stores or at hintwater.com. From the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. Thanks for starting your Sunday with 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. If you appreciate what WBUR delivers, then remember the WBUR journalism that you rely on is only possible with your feedback. We'd like to hear from you. Please take our survey and tell us what's on your mind. Go to WBUR.org slash survey and thanks. It is 68 degrees in Boston with a slight chance of some showers and thunderstorms today and highs in the low 70s. The low tonight will drop to about 60 degrees. You can expect mostly sunny skies tomorrow. Monday's temperatures in the mid-70s. Hannah Jadagu has been writing songs since middle school. Now she's headlining a U.S. tour, even though it means she has to put off college. 
achieving your dreams at an inconvenient time. On the next Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. I'm Morning Edition executive producer Dan Guzman. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. From NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. Roscoe, good morning. It's been nearly two years since the chaotic U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan. Now many evacuated Afghans in the U.S. are caught up in legal limbo. It's hard to live a life temporarily, and now I have no control over my life. It's other people in high positions deciding for my life. And back-to-school spending hit another record this year. That's a boom for stores, but what about the overall economy? Plus, move over, T-Rex. Paleontologists are on the hunt for microfossils. It's Sunday, August 27th. News is next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Louise Schiavone. Russian authorities are confirming the death of Wagner mercenary chief Yevgeny Prigozhin. As NPR's Charles Maines reports from Moscow, the positive identification comes four days after a plane believed to be carrying Prigozhin crashed to the northwest of the Russian capital. In a statement, Russia's investigative committee said molecular genetic expertise showed all 10 people on board matched the existing flight manifest, meaning Yevgeny Prigozhin and other high-ranking Wagner commanders perished in the crash. The group's business jet plunged to the earth a little over 30 minutes into a flight from Moscow to St. Petersburg on Wednesday with Prigozhin listed among passengers. A state investigation into the cause of the incident is ongoing. Prigozhin's death comes two months after he led a failed mutiny against Russia's military leadership that ended with a murky amnesty deal. The Kremlin has dismissed Western allegations that President Putin may have ordered Prigozhin's assassination as absolute lies. Charles Maines, NPR News. Moscow. Three U.S. military personnel have been killed and several others injured after an aircraft crashed on an island off the coast of northern Australia. 23 people were aboard. Scott Maiman has details. Officials from Australia's Northern Territory say 23 Americans were on board the Osprey aircraft taking part in an international military exercise when it came down on the remote Tiwi Islands just north of Darwin. Australian Prime Minister Anthony Albanese says the first priority is to help their U.S. colleagues. And the Australian Defence Force are cooperating with our friends in the United States Defence Force uh, to make sure that we provide every assistance possible. Officials say they don't know what caused the crash. The military exercise involves more than 2,000 military personnel from Australia, Indonesia, the Philippines, East Timor, as well as U.S. Marines. The exercise has now been suspended. For NPR News, I'm Scott Maiman in Canberra, Australia. 
The FBI office in Jacksonville, Florida, has opened a federal civil rights investigation into a shooting at a Dollar Tree store. Three victims, all black, were killed. The white gunman killed himself. Before the attack, officials say he had left behind racially hateful documents. In a video statement condemning the action, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis called the shooter a coward. This shooting, based on the manifesto that they've discovered from the scumbag that did this, was racially motivated. Uh, he was targeting people based on their race. Uh, that is totally unacceptable. Officials say they believe the gunman was acting alone. A new weather system is shaping up and could hit parts of Florida by midweek. Governor DeSantis has already declared a state of emergency covering the state's Gulf Coast from the southwestern city of Fort Myers through Panama City in the Panhandle. This is NPR News in Washington. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Boston police say gunfire injured eight people in Dorchester early yesterday morning. Police previously had reported seven people were caught in the gunfire. All the victims suffered non-life-threatening injuries. Four people have been arrested and face firearms charges related to the shooting. They are set to be arraigned tomorrow. The shooting occurred near the city's Caribbean Festival, but Boston police say the violence was unrelated to the event. Police in New Hampshire are investigating the death of a man who fell from a parking garage in Portsmouth in the early morning hours yesterday. Police say the man fell as he tried to flee a group of men who allegedly assaulted him outside a nearby nightclub. The victim was taken to a local hospital where he died from his injuries. A new art exhibit at the Peabody Essex Museum in Salem explores the connection between black womanhood and personal style. WBUR's Arielle Gray spoke with the artist about her colorful portraits and the use of textiles in her work. Gio Swabi's mother was a seamstress and taught her how to use fabric to tell a story. This is exactly what she does in her exhibit titled Fresh Up a phrase from the Bahamian artist's homeland that refers to someone's individual fashion choices. I think of personal style, especially for black women and especially for black girls and black people, as a kind of resistance in a way to say, I'm going to dress how I want and represent myself in a way that feels authentic and real is a journey. Gio Swabi's Fresh Up will be on view through November 26. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Arielle Gray. This afternoon at Fenway Park, it's Red Sox Dodgers. It is 68 degrees in Boston with a slight chance of showers and thunderstorms today and highs in the low 70s. A low around 60 overnight. Mostly sunny skies tomorrow. Monday's temperatures in the mid-70s. And looking ahead to Tuesday, mostly cloudy. A chance of showers and highs in the mid-70s. This is 90.9 WBUR. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by the Cy Sims Foundation. Since 1985, supporting advances in science, education, and the arts towards a fairer, more just, and civil society. More information is available at CySimsFoundation.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Good morning. It's been nearly two years since the U.S. withdrew all troops from Afghanistan. Deadly scenes of panic at the airport. Thousands of Afghans now scrambling to get out. 
And as some Afghans were evacuated to the U.S., many had to navigate a complicated immigration system, specifically humanitarian parole. Journalist Lauren Delaney Miller brings us a story of one woman stuck in that system. Mina Bakshi's evacuation from Kabul involved a long bus ride in the middle of the night, two flights, and 16 weeks spent in three different refugee staging areas. But when Mina finally arrived at a military base in New Jersey in October of 2021, she was asked a question that she hadn't been asked before. What is your case number? And I said, I, I, I literally don't know what you're talking about, and I don't think I have any case number. And that's when they told me that I'm a parolee. But what did that even mean? We had lots of questions in our mind, uh, like, okay, when will we get our green card? How long will it take for us? Are we able to go to university? Or what are the benefits we'll get? Mm -hmm. And we were using the term like refugee for ourselves, but they were like, okay, it's parole. You should not expect to get your green card soon. The majority of Afghan refugees admitted to the U.S. since August of 2021 have arrived on a program called Humanitarian Parole. That's about 77,000 Afghans who believed they would be targets of the Taliban government. Activists who had worked on behalf of women's rights or human rights, journalists, artists and university students, and also young women, like Mina, who feared their lives would change dramatically under Taliban rule. In Afghanistan, Mina had been planning to go to university, and she was a mountain climber. When the Taliban took over, Mina couldn't see a future for herself anymore. She didn't know if she'd be able to attend university or to keep climbing, because the Taliban didn't support education or sports for women and girls. So she fled. And Mina has now spent nearly two years in the U.S. on humanitarian parole. She identifies as a refugee. But unlike those with official refugee status, Parolees stay in the U.S. is temporary, and there's no guaranteed pathway to lawful permanent residency in the U.S. When I first met Mina last year and I learned about her evacuation, I'd never heard of parole. So I started to wonder, what is the purpose of parole? And where did it come from? I reached out to a historian to try and understand. Carl Bontempo, Associate Professor of History at the University at Albany, SUNY, Carl has written extensively about the history of American immigration and refugee policy and how it's evolved over the course of the 20th century. And he told me that the history of parole begins over 60 years ago, during the Cold War. The Iron Curtain slammed down to block off all communication with the West. Hungary pays a shocking price for a brief moment of liberty and hope. During the Hungarian refugee crisis of 1956, 200,000 people left Hungary. It was the biggest refugee emergency in Europe since World War II. President Eisenhower's administration was eager to support refugees, but he was limited by America's own strict immigration quotas. Carl Bontempo again. The National Origins Quota Immigration System said that you could only grant about 800 visas per year to people from Hungary. 800 visas would do nothing to help tens of thousands of Hungarians. It's a literal drop in the bucket. What can the U.S. government do? The Eisenhower administration is searching around for a legal vehicle 
to bring the Hungarians to the United States. The vehicle they hit upon is the parole power. Buried in the 120-page Immigration Bill of 1952 was one provision. And this would change the American immigration system forever. The Attorney General can admit individuals to the United States on an emergent basis, meaning that those individuals could bypass basically all of the immigration controls that were in place. Parole power was designed to provide wiggle room for emergencies. Lawmakers were aware that sometimes people would have to come to the U.S. quickly. Speed the entry of folks who might need, like, emergency medical care or something like that. And it was definitely seen as something that would be used on a case-by-case basis. But the Eisenhower administration interpreted that line as a way to grant emergency entry for tens of thousands of refugees. Within two years, it became clear that Hungarian refugees weren't returning to communist-controlled Hungary. In 1958, President Eisenhower asked Congress to pass the Hungarian Adjustment Act. I request the Congress promptly to enact legislation to regularize the status in the United States of Hungarian refugees brought here as parolees. It would allow every Hungarian paroled into the U.S. a pathway to permanent residency and eventually citizenship. And that's how humanitarian parole got started, because President Eisenhower's team reinterpreted a line in an immigration bill to save Hungarians. And this happens a few more times. This was the scene of turmoil in the capital, Havana. Following the Cuban Revolution of 1959, about a million Cubans came to the U.S., most of them on parole. Those South Vietnamese not lucky enough to have been chosen for evacuation defied the curfew and stood outside the embassy gate, begging for a seat on the helicopters. And again, in 1975, after the chaotic withdrawal of U.S. troops during the fall of Saigon, about 170,000 Vietnamese entered the U.S. as parolees. And so this is the pattern then that is set. You parole the newcomers in, and then a few years after that, you pass an Adjustment Act that provides a pathway to permanent residence. But this ad hoc system for admitting refugees was disorganized. And legislators on both sides of the aisle wanted to formalize the process. So, in 1980, Congress passed the Refugee Act to create a whole new refugee admission system, separate from the immigration system. And with this new system in place, for the next few decades, parole more or less went back to its original and limited usage. For a few decades, it seemed like parole's big moment was mostly over. Until 2021. Last night in Kabul, the United States ended 20 years of war in Afghanistan. The longest war... The problem you run into in the 21st century is speed. And the process by which one obtains a Refugee Act visa is anything but quick. It goes without saying that a slow process isn't an option for refugees whose lives have changed overnight but it can take years to get through the refugee system. And so Biden, like Eisenhower, sought a way to get around our backlogged refugee admission system. And parole seems to be a very good option. But here is where the Afghan situation breaks from history. In August of 2022, Senator Amy Klobuchar, along with a bipartisan group of senators, introduced the Afghan Adjustment Act. It is our responsibility to provide these Afghan refugees 
with the assurance that they can stay here and rebuild their lives. The Afghan Adjustment Act would provide a path to permanent status for parolees while expanding pathways for Afghans left behind. But the bill is stalled in Congress, and it's facing a steep uphill battle. But you also brought in tens of thousands of Afghans who had wholly inadequate vetting. We have to understand there is a danger to this country. The idea of vetting keeps coming up as opponents' main objection to the bill. Bipartisan supporters of the bill point to the extensive background checks that are already required. A revised bill was introduced this spring with increased security measures, but it still hasn't gained enough Republican support. In lieu of an Adjustment Act, parolees' primary option for achieving permanent status is through applying for asylum. And that's something Mina's been working on. But her immigration lawyer told her that the process could take years. It's hard to, to live uh, a life temporarily, and now I have no control over my life. It's other people in high positions deciding for my life. According to the latest data from Syracuse University, the average wait time for an asylum case is currently four years. And the backlog of asylum cases in the U.S. is over 900,000. There have been no updates on Mina's asylum application since her asylum interview in December of 2022. I think the day that I hear back from the government, whether they accept me or they will not, that moment will be the time that I think of my, my long-term future in this country. This August would have been the two-year mark when the parole program for Afghans would start to expire. But this spring, President Biden extended parole for Afghans. So now, Mina has two more years of safety, but also two more years of uncertainty. As Mina's asylum case winds its way through backlogged immigration courts, the fight for the Afghan Adjustment Act is ongoing. And this week, Mina moved to Swarthmore to start school. She went knowing that her parole status could expire during her sophomore year. But I don't know, I, I for now, I, I kind of don't want to think ahead of what will happen. I want to enjoy like my college life uh, and to find, you know, my community. That was journalist Lauren Delaney Miller reporting. At the end of July, the sponsors of the Afghan Adjustment Act tried to include it in the National Defense Authorization Act, which authorizes funding for the Defense Department. But that was blocked by Republicans who have introduced a separate Adjustment Act, one that would significantly reduce the president's parole powers. You're listening to NPR News. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 918 and coming up in about 15 minutes here on 90.9 WBUR, a Texas law that bans drag shows where minors are present takes effect September 1st. One San Antonio restaurant is holding what could be its last performance. You'll get that and much more ahead on Weekend Edition Sunday. Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org slash cars. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Zoo New England. Boston Lights, presented by National Grid, is back at Franklin Park Zoo. Experience hundreds of amazing lanterns nightly through October 29th. FranklinParkZoo.org. 
tap and listen to WBUR anywhere the summer takes you. Listen live and catch up on anything you missed. Download or update the WBUR app now. I'm Luis Schiavone with these headlines. NASA is reporting on the social media X platform that the SpaceX Dragon Endurance spacecraft is currently docking with the International Space Station after 30 hours of travel. Officials in Russia say they now have forensics proof that Wagner mercenary group leader Yevgeny Prigozhin was on board a plane that crashed near Moscow on Wednesday. On the Hawaiian island of Maui, authorities have mostly finished their search for human remains within the burn zone of the deadly wildfire that destroyed most of Lahaina. The death toll still remains at at least 115 people. I'm Luis Schiavone, NPR News, Washington. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fisher Investments. As a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their clients' best interest. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. From the Lodestar Foundation, inspired by the principle that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at lodestarfoundation.org. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Republicans are up against a widening generation gap. In the midterms, voters 18 to 29 supported Democrats by almost 30 points, according to exit polls. Younger voters tend to break with Republicans on issues like abortion and climate change. But some young Republicans hope to change that. NPR's Sarah McCammon was in Milwaukee this past week for the first Republican primary debate and has this report. At just 17, Brylin Hollyhand is too young to vote in his home state of Alabama's presidential primary next year. He'll have to wait until next November to cast his first ballot as a Republican. And he wants more young voters to join him. We drastically underperformed in the midterms. I mean, it was embarrassing. Hollyhand is co-chairman of the Republican National Committee's new Youth Advisory Council, which is working to meet young voters where they are, he says mostly online. He says the RNC assembled a diverse group of voters under 35 for the council. That was important to us, that it wasn't just what the traditional Republican Party was, of, you know, 10 old white straight males sitting in a boardroom and, and trying to tell the country how, how to run things. We didn't want that. Hollyhand sees his values reflected in the Republican Party and the conservative Supreme Court justices appointed by former President Trump. As a young white male himself, he says he was concerned that affirmative action might hurt his chances of getting into the best colleges. I am a white, straight male. Um, I'm bottom of the totem pole, um, and I, I really am. So Hollyhand was pleased with the Supreme Court's recent decision rejecting race-conscious admissions. His co-chair on the RNC Youth Advisory Council, C.J. Pearson from Georgia, says he agrees. As a black man in America, I do not want anything that I achieve to be thought about as, oh, well, Sure, I know he's smart. Uh, he's pretty articulate. He's pretty well-spoken. And, you know, he's a good resume. But at the same time, though, like, did he really earn that or did he earn it because he's black? As a young black Republican, Pearson is an outlier. 
The GOP lags behind not just with young voters, but with voters of color and with women. Young female voters have expressed particularly strong support for abortion rights. But for 24-year-old Alyssa Rinelli of Milwaukee, the Supreme Court decision overturning Roe v. Wade is moving the country in the right direction. Rinelli says it will promote what she describes as greater personal responsibility when it comes to sex. If you're gonna, you know, do the thing, make sure that you're protected and you're being responsible and perhaps you're choosing the person that you are going to do it with um, a little bit more carefully. And so I think that that's what it's promoting. Rinelli also thinks her party needs to do a better job making its case to younger voters. She recently started a local Milwaukee County Young Republicans chapter. They're really just not in front of young voters the way that Democrats are. They don't always have, you know, quote unquote, sexy appeal that the Democrats do in terms of their policies and the things that they put forth. But getting the Republican message in front of younger voters may not be enough, says Melissa Deckman, CEO of the Public Religion Research Institute. Yeah, they can outreach to young voters, but right now that message I don't think is going to be received very well. Deckman notes that younger Americans are more diverse, less religious, and more likely to identify as LGBTQ. The Republican Party right now is not exactly uh, embracing the sorts of issues that those voters care about. Young Republicans like Brylin Hollyhand will be out talking to their peers over the coming months, urging them to get involved. My big push over the next few months is educating and making sure that our generation knows how to vote, where to vote, when to vote, all of that. This election cycle, the Republican Party is actively embracing early voting, hoping that push brings in new conservative voters. Sarah McCammon, NPR News, Milwaukee. It's that time of year. Kids are heading back to class, and that means parents are spending big on notebooks, pencils, crayons, and other back-to-school supplies. I've got three little students of my own, and I know I have been shelling out for them. Well, we're going to go to school right now ourselves with NPR's retail expert, Alina Selyuk, and our chief economic correspondent, Scott Horsley. Good morning. Hello, hello. Good morning. So, Alina, let's start with you. Like, what do stores expect from this year's back-to-school season? Uh, Another record. The National Retail Federation says families of school kids, on average, are expected to spend $890 on back-to-school stuff. This is supplies, clothes, and shoes, and that is $25 more than last year's record. Part of it is inflation, and a little part of it has to do with what we're buying. This year, compared to last year, the retail trade group found more people are saying they are buying electronics, which are pricey. Yeah, I'm not buying electronics, but it was lots of notebooks and binders and markers, post-it notes. It all adds up for three children. $890, perhaps? I don't know. It was a lot of money. It was a lot of the, the cart was very full. And then I don't, we're not even talking about clothes. Scott, school supplies aren't the only thing that people have to buy. So how does this fit in with other spending? People are definitely spending. Uh, retail sales rose seven-tenths of a percent last month, which easily outpaced inflation. We keep looking for consumer spending to lose a little steam at some point, especially as lower-income families run out of those savings they built up early in the pandemic. But we're not really seeing any slowdown yet. Uh, People are still spending a lot of money on experiences like dining out, entertainment, 
In some cases, they are putting that spending uh, on the credit card. Credit card balances topped a trillion dollars for the first time this spring. But when it comes to buying stuff, we are hearing from some retailers that people are mostly shelling out for stuff they need, like those back-to-school supplies, and not so much on things that would just be nice to have. Clothing stores overall have had a tough year, but discounted clothing stores like TJ Maxx and Ross are doing pretty well. So people are still interested in nice-to-have things like name-brand clothes, but preferably on sale. So are there other weak spots out there, things where people have kind of pulled back on their spending? We've definitely seen a slowdown in purchases tied to housing. You know, mortgage rates have hit their highest level in more than two decades, uh, nearly seven and a quarter percent this past week. So fewer houses are selling. And when housing sales drop off, you tend to see a slump in furniture and appliance sales as well. We definitely have home improvement stores talking about this a lot. Lowe's and Home Depot are saying that professional contractors are still spending a bunch for, you know, routine repair and maintenance projects that you can't avoid. This is helping to offset losses from people buying fewer appliances, for example. Executives also say they believe shoppers are delaying big home improvement projects. Um, here's what we heard from Lowe's CEO Marvin Ellison. Looking ahead, it's encouraging to consider that home improvement projects are typically postponed rather than canceled. We know many people did a lot of home renovations earlier in the pandemic, and many are probably waiting for prices or interest rates to fall. Personal spending is the biggest driver of the overall economy, but can we afford to keep this level of spending up? And, you know, don't make this personal, though. <laughs> That's, that, is, that is a big question. Um, this week, we did hear Macy say that it's been seeing more people delinquent on their store credit card payments. We could see another crunch this fall when student loan payments, which were deferred during the pandemic, are expected to kick back in. Overall, credit card delinquencies had been a very low for the last few years, uh, in part because of that savings cushion that people had been up. Uh, now we have seen delinquency rates inch back to about where they were before the pandemic struck. And I mentioned those rising credit card balances. If you don't pay off your balance every month, this is very costly credit. The interest rates are typically topping 20 percent. So isn't the Federal Reserve trying to put the brakes on spending? That's what we keep hearing. You know, isn't that why the central bank's been raising interest rates? That's right. The Fed is trying to tamp down demand in order to get inflation under control. And inflation has come down, which is good. Uh, wages are now climbing faster than prices, so people have seen their real spending power go up. But if spending picks up too much, that could reignite inflation. And that's something Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell warned about at Jackson Hole this past Friday. We are attentive to signs that the economy may not be cooling as expected. So far this year, GDP growth has come in above expectations and above its longer run trend. And recent readings on consumer spending have been especially robust. So the Fed's also going to keep a close eye on spending. And if it gets too hot, that could be a reason for another hike in interest rates later this year. Scott Horsley and Alina Selyuk, thank you so much. Thank you. You're welcome. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. The Panama Canal is one of the world's major trade routes, but currently it's experiencing a huge traffic jam with dozens of ships backed up in both the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans. The cause? 
and historic drought in Panama, which has reduced the canal's water levels. Joining us to discuss a potential impact on global trade is Adil Ashek, head of the Americas for the maritime intelligence firm Marine Traffic. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Aisha. Happy to be here. So can you explain how the drought in Panama is causing these delays? I mean, I think I'm right in saying that the canal uses three times as much water as New York City every day. Is that correct? Yes, that is correct. And I think one of the biggest facts of the canal that people don't realize is that it is not actually fed by ocean water. It's in fact fed by fresh water that's collected through lots of the rainfall that was dammed when the canal was built. So Panama is notoriously a very wet, one of the wettest countries in the world, actually. So this is very unprecedented that the rainfall amount is not replenishing the lake, which is known as the Gatun Lake. And so the levels aren't sustaining the volume of ships traveling in and out. Okay. And and so does that mean that some of the ships are being forced to offload some of their goods or to be lighter? Yeah, no, great question. So when ships go from ocean to ocean, they have to go through a tier of locks. And so these locks, they will rise because Panama Canal actually is above sea level. So once the vessel is at the level of the canal itself, this makes it a navigation concern for a vessel. To combat this, vessels technically need to be lighter so that their draft, basically the amount of ship that's underwater, doesn't run aground. And and, and I would imagine that's money if you have to transport less goods than you otherwise would. Are there also delays? Yes, definitely. If ships are carrying less cargo, then that's less trade flowing through the canal. And in terms of the traffic, the jams, the delays that we're actually seeing at the canal for both the Pacific and Atlantic are actually about 30% more vessels waiting versus the, the average that we've seen in the past. Mm. So what can authorities do in Panama other than just hope for rain? So they're building additional reservoirs. They're trying to understand ways that they can reuse water, uh, looking at ways to dam other areas to have backup supply in case these conditions can worsen in the future. And we have to think 20 years, 50 years, 100 years down the line. Are shipping companies looking for different routes since they're having issues with the Panama Canal? Absolutely. So in terms of the type of shipping, Aisha, so if we look at the container trade, container vessels haven't really been impacted much by delays because they generally will get priority. However, in terms of bulk trade. So lots of raw materials that are used in manufacturing or say gasoline. This market specifically is starting to see those types of delays. And sometimes these vessels are loaded so heavy 
that they simply cannot transit the canal and they have no choice but to sail around South America. That's Adil Ashek from the maritime intelligence firm Marine Traffic. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Aisha. You're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. A San Antonio, Texas drag group put on what might have been their last show on Friday night. That's because a state law is set to go into effect that bans drag performances in the presence of minors. Texas Public Radio's Kayla Padilla was there and brings back the story. For a year now, the drag group 360 Queen Entertainment has been performing monthly on the patio at Tomatillos, a bar and family-friendly restaurant on the far north side of San Antonio. On Friday at what could be the final show, the drag performers kept the audience in high spirits and joked about the new law that could put them out of business. You're offended, aren't you? Oh my god, I'm even drag. Call the cops. The show included performances from local drag queens and from Robin Fierce, a former contestant on the TV show RuPaul's Drag Race. The drag star from Connecticut was well aware of the new Texas law. What is drag doing to people except bringing joy and letting them express themselves in their art? I hope that as a community we're able to continue to do those things unabashedly and without people getting in the way of that. Texas Senate Bill 12 states that, quote, sexually oriented performances are illegal on commercial and public property in the presence of minors. I know that nationally there are some queens that just won't come to Texas. That's Richard Montes. He and his partner David Gomez are co-owners of 360 Queen Entertainment. In anticipation of the law, they moved this 90s-themed drag show to 9 p.m. in hopes fewer families with children would be in the restaurant. Montes says these drag shows are not inherently sexual, but he says a new law is so broad that it could lead to criminal charges against him and his company. Under this law, any child in the presence of this show could mean that the venue is fined, that our business is fined, and that our performers are charged with misdemeanors. Montes and his partner have joined the ACLU of Texas's lawsuit against the bill, calling the drag ban unconstitutional and a violation of free speech rights. We will be going to Houston on Monday to testify in front of a judge, and we're hoping that that's going to result immediately in either a temporary injunction on the law or perhaps a striking down of it. For local drag talent, the law is a huge threat to their livelihood and rights as performers. King Edcox Robinson, a performer who goes by the stage name The Queen Fantasia Wood, says performing at Tomatillos is a steady gig that has helped her pay the bills. So it's kind of going to be me taking a big hit financially, but also just like one of those things like why do I have to keep fighting for the basics of me being able to live my life authentically. In fact, Robinson says drag saved her life. She says she was raised in Chicago in a religious family. I grew up as a very queer, feminine, black kid, and that was very looked down upon. When I found drag, it finally gave me the presence that I knew my feminine nature needed to thrive. Republicans backing the law claim it will keep children safe. Here's Senator Brian Hughes, who authored the bill at a Texas Senate debate. This is about protecting children. What should be done in the presence of children? During the debate, Texas Democrat Roland Gutierrez called that hypocritical. I've been all about this session about protecting children, my friend, and we haven't done a whole lot of protecting the children when it comes to guns and ammunition. 
At Friday night's show, a local drag queen ended with words of optimism, hoping the ban will be overturned. And club owner Richard Montes says he'll continue to fight the bill. We refuse to just roll over and die. We will not be controlled. Similar laws in other states trying to outlaw drag shows have been struck down by the courts. As of now, the Texas law is set to go into effect September 1st, and critics warn the ban could affect other performances, including plays, comedy, and wrestling, not just drag. For NPR News, I'm Kayla Padilla in San Antonio. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody. Boston police say gunfire injured eight people in Dorchester early yesterday morning. Previously, police had said seven people were hurt. The injuries are not considered life-threatening. Four people have been arrested and face firearms charges. They're said to be arraigned tomorrow. Boston police say the violence was unrelated to the nearby Caribbean festival. This is the final weekend of the total shutdown of the Sumner Tunnel in Boston. It's been closed since July 5th for restoration work, and it is set to reopen September 1st. However, starting this fall and continuing into summer of next year, the tunnel will be closed on weekends. Then next July and August, the Sumner Tunnel once again will be completely shut down. A month of weekend street festivals wraps up today in Boston's North End. It is the final day of the 104th annual Feast of St. Anthony. The event includes food, music, and a grand procession. At Fenway Park this afternoon, the Red Sox play the Dodgers. Tanner Houck gets the start for Boston. It is 69 degrees in Boston, a slight chance of some showers and thunderstorms today, and highs reaching the low 70s. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Circle Furniture. Committed to utilizing sustainable practices and partnering with local artisanal craftspeople in sourcing their furniture. CircleFurniture.com. Hey, it's Peter Sagal. Whatever your summer plans might be, maybe you're heading off to the Berkshires or the Cape or even, God forbid, somewhere outside Massachusetts, take me with you. Download the WBUR app and you'll have every episode of Wait, Wait at your fingertips. You can listen to WBUR live from anywhere and rewind if you missed something or just want to hear one of my bon mots over again. Get the WBUR app and never miss Wait, Wait. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. And from Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. More information is available online at Carnegie.org. This is NPR. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. It's been another summer of extreme weather. Wildfires, hurricanes, heat. Human-driven climate change doesn't cause such events. It does make them more likely. The solution scientists say again and again, stop burning oil, gas, and coal get to basically net zero greenhouse gas emissions by 2050. We hear a lot about what consumers can do, but what about companies, specifically big oil companies? Jason Bordoff studies this. He's the founding director of the Center on Global Energy Policy at Columbia University. Thanks for joining the show. Thanks for having me, Aisha. Good to see you again. 
What are some notable pledges or commitments that oil companies have made on energy goals? There's a lot of variance in the industry, and it's important to not paint with a broad brush. There are the large household names, the so-called seven super majors people have kind of heard of, and some of those are spending more on clean energy. I think what's been notable to me in this year, this summer, when we've seen severe wildfires and heat and humidity indexes that are literally in some places in the world testing the limits of human survival, at the same time that energy security with Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the gas crisis is back on the agenda and oil and gas use is going up, not down. Prices are going up, not down. So given all this, we've seen some of the more prominent energy companies walk back somewhat commitments they made to move away from oil and gas and toward clean energy. And the market has rewarded them for that. Their share price has gone up, not down. Well, isn't that kind of like the fundamental conflict here for a business that's trying to make money? If that's your business is fossil fuels, how can you really phase them out? I think for many, that's the view that they seem to have today. I think there are some that have made commitments to help achieve net zero emissions, but I think the actual behavior we're seeing suggests skepticism that we're going to get anywhere close to these goals we're talking about, like net zero by 2050. So if you think the world is going to use oil and gas for a long time to come, then it makes sense if you're a business to continue to produce it or a skepticism, maybe by the company or their shareholders, that they can be as profitable if they do shift from oil and gas to clean energy. And, you know, the returns for renewables are not always as high. Again, oil demand this year will reach its highest level ever. It's going up, not down. And if any particular companies pull back from that, there are plenty of other companies, particularly nationally owned companies, that are investing tens of billions of dollars now to increase how much oil they can produce 10 years from now because they see a world where oil demand is going to go up, not down. Do you think this will be a big topic at the next G20 summit in September and how um, these big economies can bring down consumption? I hope it is. It, it'll be at the G20. It'll certainly be at the UN climate meetings that are taking place this year in the United Arab Emirates. We should not be ramping up production and investment in oil and gas, even though right now prices are high. And, and we should acknowledge that politicians worried about their economies, worried about politics, even the Biden administration, which has a, passed the largest climate bill in history, has said, well, in the near term, we want oil and gas companies to produce more, not less, because we're worried about gasoline prices, particularly going into an election year. The International Energy Agency says investment by the industry in clean fuels remains, quote, well short of where it needs to be. What are some of these investments that are needed? Is it energy storage? Is it carbon capture sequestration? What is it? Look, we need we need all of those things. We need a lot of renewable deployment. We need some things that maybe the industry, energy industry wouldn't be doing, but you know, auto industries need to be moving faster and some are to invest in the production of electric vehicles. Maybe energy companies could be helping to build the charging network. They have a network of gasoline stations and those could be places where you could charge electric vehicles as well. We need not only electricity. I mean, well, we need a lot of renewable electricity, but we also need low carbon fuels, things like hydrogen. Geothermal is another area that requires drilling to be able to access the significant energy resources that lie, you know, many miles below the surface. So we need all of those things and more. And I think the energy industry is can be uh, well poised to play a role in that. They should be leaning in. They should be on the cutting edge of those things. They have 
I think, an obligation given kind of where we are today and the historic problem that's been created by carbon emissions. But I think you can only ask any company to lean in so far at some point if the market is penalizing them, not rewarding them for moving in a faster direction to clean energy. And so what we also need to be doing is changing that dynamic. That's Jason Bordov. He is the director of the Center on Global Energy Policy at Columbia University. Thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for the invitation. Petrified Forest National Park in northern Arizona is is famous for enormous crystallized trees and dinosaur bones dating back to the Triassic period. The park's hills are also full of tiny bones. Paleontologists are taking a close look at these microfossils and say they too hold the secrets of the past. Member station KNAU's Melissa Sivany reports. The colorful hills of Petrified Forest hide all kinds of hidden wonders, and paleontologist Adam Marsh is headed out to find them. 700, 402. There is not a speck of green in this landscape, but dark banded layers in the hillsides mark what used to be the bottom of Triassic ponds, fringed with ferns and conifers. Marsh parks his truck not far from one of his field sites. The hop, skip, and the jump over that ridge to where we're going. These hills are full of microfossils from 200 million year old frogs, lizards, and other small animals. Marsh says park paleontologists never used to pay attention to the little things, too busy digging up dinosaurs and crocodile like creatures. He says that changed about a decade ago. It was sort of a happenstance of preparing large fossils and finding the small stuff inside, and then kind of switching focus to realize, oh, we're missing most of the story of diversity through time by focusing on the large stuff. At the field site, Marsh digs his pickaxe into the hillside. A shower of tiny fossils falls out. So here's this, I just put my pick through the site, or through the layer. See how this is coprolite? These are all little coprolites and teeth. Coprolites are what's left over after Triassic beasts use ponds and rivers as bathrooms. Studying these small roundish blobs is the specialty of park intern Isaiah McKinney. I had that dinosaur face as a kid that I never really grew out of. Coprolites might not be as glamorous as dinosaurs, but McKinney says their various shapes, spiral or pancake flat, give clues to the anatomy of animals long since extinct. Every part of the puzzle tells a story, and really, it's our goal as paleontologists to try to put that story together, even if it means looking at the not-so-pleasant stuff. But how to find, say, a hip bone the size of an eyelash? The team brings buckets of soil back to the museum laboratory at the Petrified Forest Visitor Center. There, Adam Marsh soaks the dirt in water until it turns to sludge. So what we're going to do, we'll take one of these buckets, We'll go outside. Outside is an old cattle trough filled with water. So you stick your box in your trough, and then you pour it in. The sludge splashes onto a screened box that's submerged inside the trough. And then, this is the fun part. You basically agitate this to get the mud and the water to go through the bottom of the box, leaving bigger chunks of mud and hopefully all of your fossils in the box. 
Bones and teeth are picked out and cleaned up with tiny air hoses and paintbrushes. Broken pieces are jigsawed back together with tweezers under microscopes, plus dabs of superglue so small they could fit on the end of a human hair. Ben Kligman is working on a reptile jaw. It's one of the big satisfying aspects is when you do find a fit like that, that, that really opens a whole new world of understanding this animal. This ability to find and reassemble tiny broken bits of bone is a new step in paleontology, and it's turning up all kinds of new species, like minuscule frogs and toothed worms that still have descendants today. Even more exciting, Kligman says, are the bones they can't identify. There's still a huge amount of the anatomy of all these animals that's, that's a mystery and will be probably unraveled over the next century. People will slowly figure out bit by bit what all these different bones we're finding are. The scientists say one drawer of microfossils can hold a career's worth of data. And now that they know how to look, they're finding Triassic troves not just in petrified forest, but in other places throughout North America. Small wonders that have been overlooked until now. For NPR News, I'm Melissa Sivany. The National Mall's white granite monuments have been joined by new ones for the next few weeks that look and sound a little different. Six acclaimed artists were given a task to make monuments commemorating American stories missing from the mall. NPR's Netta Ulabi paid a visit. A metal xylophone sits in a colorful playground in the middle of the mall. It marks the moment when an actual playground in Washington, D.C. was desegregated in 1954. A billboard-sized photograph shows joyful kids, black and white, sliding, swinging, and climbing together. You can play on this monument, too. What does it mean to have a, a work of art, a monument on the mall that you can play on? That's Salamisha Tillett. She co-curated the show, called Beyond Granite, Pulling Together. It's the first ever official outdoor show on the National Mall. Unlike the Jefferson or Lincoln Memorial, she says, this monument pops with color. And really not just any color, it's really quite rainbow-filled. The idea of the show is to honor American stories that for most of our history were pushed aside. So instead of a statue of a guy on a horse, this monument on the Mall, says Tillett, centers American kids at a critical moment in the fight for democracy. And fight for children, all children, to have equal access and the right to play. Beyond Granite, Pulling Together was conceived by a group in Philadelphia called Monument Lab. Director Paul Farber says it's not about pulling down old monuments. But to make room for many stories that have not been told here, but are felt here. When Marian Anderson sang at the Lincoln Memorial in 1939, it was because white supremacists had banned her from performing at Constitution Hall. Singing on the Mall reclaimed this most American of spaces. Anderson inspired this show and artist Paul Ramirez Jonas. He built a bronze bell tower to honor her. It plays My Country Tis of Thee, but it stops right before the very last note. So the song is not complete until someone comes in and plays that last note.
someone literally has to step forward and pull a lever. The piece is simply saying, America is not America without you as an active citizen. It needs you in some way. Not all of these monuments are interactive. They were designed by a cross-section of artists, Black, Latino, Asian, and Native, from all over the country. The show's gotten enthusiastic reviews for how it redresses the ways American identity is defined by what we publicly mourn. I think about how in this country we're bursting at the seams with grief, with loss. We don't always have a place to put it. Putting it on the National Mall, Farber says, makes it matter symbolically like no place else. Think of the AIDS quilt, or this new memorial designed by artist Sean Thomas Crowley. We're standing in the shadow of the Washington Monument by a maze of bright blue platforms. But it's not a labyrinth in a Christian way. It's a labyrinth honoring a different kind of tradition. Crowley grew up in the Pentecostal church. His monument mourns the queer musicians who directed its choirs and sang at its services, and who died closeted of AIDS-related complications. Playing on speakers is music, Crowley wrote. These deaths might not be something that some visitors to the mall think of as their American story, but this monument makes you think, why not? Crowley also wants to reveal how black gospel music and the blues can be traced to the Muslim prayers of long-ago people taken from Africa. If you did not have that sonic practice of prayer, you wouldn't have the blues and you wouldn't have gospel music. The maze, if seen from above, spells out a word in Arabic. And it spells the word amin, which means let this prayer be accepted. When you enter this maze, you are entering the word and the prayer. Where are people finding their way? Where are we finding belonging? Monument Lab director Paul Farber says amidst all the hand-wringing about monuments, these artists are finding solutions, not by limiting or repressing history. We're actually looking for history to come to life. You know, I think a lot of monuments commemorate the dead people. That's artist Tiffany Chung. Her monument lies near the Vietnam Veterans Memorial. I think it's difficult to live. (laughs) And you know, when you talk about war and conflict, the consequences also fall on the shoulders of the living. Chung was a refugee when she came to the U.S. from Vietnam. Her monument is a map, low on the ground, made out of thick black landscaping rubber. It shows flight paths of migrants from Southeast Asia around the world. For me, it's like, well, instead of erecting something really to hit the sky, I want to spread it out onto the earth because this is, this is us. This is where we will go back to after we leave this world. And this is beautiful. The grass will grow. The sun will wash things away, maybe including the materials that created this map. But that's the brevity of life. To commemorate the living is really important. What we able to do while we're here on the earth. Making room on this piece of symbolic earth can, maybe, help deal with legacies of harm. But the monuments of the show, beyond granite pulling together, are not permanent. They will only be displayed until the middle of September. Neto Ulibi, NPR News, Washington. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. 
Support for NPR comes from this station and from Made in Cookware, partnering with chefs like Tom Colicchio to bring professional-grade cookware to restaurants and home kitchens. Their cookware can be found at madeincookware.com. From Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of any size to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. More at indeed.com NPR. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at macfound.org. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me is next at 10 o'clock. And start your Monday with WBUR. Studies show as carbon dioxide levels rise, poison ivy grows faster and is more toxic. You'll learn about the science and hear about what clinicians and landscapers are seeing on the ground. You'll get the story tomorrow morning here on 90.9 WBUR. It's 69 degrees in Boston with a slight chance of some showers and thunderstorms and highs today in the low 70s. Low around 60 overnight and then a mostly sunny Monday with temperatures tomorrow in the mid-70s. The summer's brutal heat and climate-driven disasters have many people wondering if time has already run out to effectively address the climate crisis. Well, it can't be too late. We can't allow it to be too late. We spoke with President Biden's climate envoy, John Kerry, on why he remains hopeful about efforts to curb climate change. A closer look at the administration's climate goals. That's tomorrow on All Things Considered from NPR News. Today at 5 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. I'm Chief Content Officer Victor Hernandez. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.